This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 145. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. We are less than two weeks away from the SNN Network Australia virtual event. Full agenda and presenting companies will be live next week, and I'm beyond pumped for our lineup. I've recorded uh, one of the keynotes already, and it is, it's fire. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Uh, Be sure to join us at the SNN Network Australia virtual event on November 9th and 10th, 2020, U.S. Pacific time, and 10th and 11th Australian East Coast time. And for more information, please visit australia.snn.network and click register now. Look forward to seeing you there virtually. We have a really interesting week of shows for you uh, on the SNN Podcast Network. I would say the theme for this week is Endgame. Not that the world is ending, but uh, but really trying to get an understanding of outcomes based on scenarios, you know, from a, a little event happening next week that hasn't been talked about at all on any of the media channels whatsoever. On In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure, our hosts take a break from telling you a war story uh, to discuss with you their thoughts on modern monetary theory, debt deficits, debasement, and, well, endgame. Uh, as wealth managers, they need to have an opinion on this topic and really what's going on in general uh, and how everything affects everything. So uh, in this episode, they, they share that insight. So it's, it's, really, it's a really great show, a lot of valuable insights and information here that you'll be able to hear on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. A uh, similar theme for our upcoming episode of the Investors Roundtable. We're talking endgame again. Uh, upcoming scenarios and potential implications for the economy. Tune in on Friday to see who joins me for this discussion. You can watch this episode on SNN Network YouTube channel, which is www.youtube.com slash SNN Wire. And on avoiding the crowd with Mosh Sway Don, uh, this episode, you know, there, there are many myths around microcap stocks that many investors use as excuses to not invest in this asset class. Uh, not enough liquidity, usually little to no revenues, poor quality management teams, no dividend, the, the list goes on. So we thought it would be fun to use a case study on a company that uh, really demystifies some of these myths. Uh, uh, one, one that actually has been very successful investment for Maj. Uh, so using his investment experience in Farmchem Inc., a uh, publicly traded company, the simple as PCHM, which he actually still owns, uh, Maj demonstrates how a non-fully reporting, revenue-generating, profitable, dividend-paying, illiquid OTC company with a stop sign has worked out for his portfolio. Uh, full disclosure, nor I or anyone at SNN own shares in PCHM. And you can check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Keith Smith. He is the portfolio manager at Bonhoeffer Capital. Keith joined me on the Willow Oak Asset Management Affiliated Funds Roundtable back in August, and it was time to highlight his investing philosophy and strategy. I have to say, Keith is a never-ending pit of information with an insatiable appetite to go down every rabbit hole to accumulate as much knowledge as he can. Uh, If there's one thing to take away from this interview as an investor, go down that rabbit hole. 
and fill your brain with details, facts, intelligence. It'll all help you on your investing journey. Uh, you will enjoy learning about Keith's private company valuation methodology that he uses to assess public securities. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 145 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Keith Smith. back everybody to the planet microcap podcast i'm your host robert Kraft, and joining me today is a gentleman who was actually on a, a really awesome panel that we did at in uh, at our event in uh, august 2020 in the first week this year it was a willow oak roundtable i invite you all to go check that out and uh today we're doing our, our first uh, individual interview which i'm excited to do so joining me without further ado is keith smith he is the founder and portfolio manager at Bonhoeffer Capital Management. Keith, thank you for joining yeah. me today. How are you doing? Yeah, th thanks a lot for inviting me here, Rob. Really, uh, really enjoy it and uh, look forward to the interview. No, absolutely. So, so let's dig right in. Let's okay. go. You know, I I'd love to start with your hmm. background and and where your, your passion for investing began. So with that, okay. the floor is yours. Well, uh, my passion for investing has been, been around for a long time. I... I went to college, it's probably goes back, let's go back to when I was in college. I went to college at Union College in Schenectady, New York, had an Air Force ROTC scholarship. To put a little bit of framework, this was back when the Cold War was <clears throat> was raging and, and the government was basically saying, if you get an engineering degree, we'll pay for it. So I basically took advantage of that at that time, wanted to serve the, serve the country in the Air Force. And so that's, that's why I went to school. And basically for the first three years, three or four years, basically focused on engineering, when I, I did have a summer internship at Cornell, where I actually was laying out an integrated circuit as part of my program there. And then I, I did get access to the Cornell University Library. And the Cornell University Library had a, um, had a great number of uh, investing resources. One of the things back then, now this is, remember, this is back in the early 80s. They didn't have screens back then, but they used to have this publication called the Media General. Um, Media General came out with this newspaper every week that in effect was a screen. And so basically I, I was able to do that and got into some, looking at some of the early screening of, from a value perspective. Also over the summer, I picked up a copy of security analysis and sort of got a little bit more into specifically what was value investing about. So that's sort of how I started out. This was back in the, when I was in college what, after I get when I when I joined the Air Force, I ended up being stationed. My first state, my first location was first and only location was at Los Angeles Air Force Base in El Segundo, out in sunny California, where you're at. And so basically, I was in the Air Force for for six years. Worked on a satellite program called Milstar, which at the time was sort of a military satellite program that was supposed to uh, provide telecommunications through all kinds of nasty nuclear events and those kinds of things too. So in essence, it was doing a real interesting sort of science-oriented type of type of stuff, doing systems engineering for them. Got out of the Air Force um, at the time and then also uh, at the same time worked for a cost consulting firm. And then after that, <clears throat> while I was working there, one got my MBA at UCLA, um, sort of pursued a lot more focused in the, in the, business, the business finance area there, got some, had some really good professors um, and then when I left there, actually worked for Price Waterhouse in the business appraisal area. So in essence, I was able to, my, my interest has always been in stocks and securities and markets and how all those things sort of worked and was actually able to sort of combine those when I went back and got my MBA and then, then worked in business appraisal. Now business appraisal, you know, at the time was sort of a smaller group, smaller area, but now it's a much larger area in the fact that there's a lot of need for business appraisals for financial reporting, tax report, at the time it was sort of tax reporting, but in essence, it's valuing a company for a, for a tax purpose and using those same skills is very similar to what you do to value a company that's publicly traded. The difference is you're primarily dealing with private companies and there are some differences, And um, but the underlying businesses are still the same and it's interesting to sort of capture some of those, understanding what, what really drive those. And that's also helped me, helped us with the Bonhoeffer Fund in terms of understanding, okay, 
a number of the things that we invest in are holding companies. What are the discounts? What will be what should be a normal discount? Why is a the discount there? Because a lot of the small parts, uh, some of the parts analysis that folks do, there's an impl implicit assumption there. You're actually going to be able to go and break up the company and get fair value for each piece. Well, in most cases, as a minority shareholder, you have no ability to do that, and so therefore. When you, when, we, when you value a private business like that, you take a significant discount because you don't have that ability. Now, what can happen over time is someone can come in and, and actually, you know, break it up and sell it. And that's how the value is realized. But unless that happens or there's some path to that, a lot of times these discounts can stay large for long periods of time as a result. And so it's a, I think it's something that we see out in the marketplace. It's not really, a lot of public investors know about it, but it's really in the private world where it's really used and the, and the revolution of that is basically when people are, when, when a person passes away, certain sh private shares have to be valued for tax purposes. So a lot of it's driven by sort of this tax based sort of analysis of what's a reasonable discount because on one side of the case you have, okay, the taxpayer is saying, look, I don't want to pay as much tax as I, as little tax as I want. So I'm going to say, well, I want a really low value. And then you've got the IRS on the other side saying, okay, well, it's, it's worth more because if it's worth more, they get more taxes. And so there's been a number of court cases over the years. And even if you go back into Ben Graham's analysis at the time, there was still some court cases and precedents along those lines. So it gives you some idea of what, you know, it's been a compromise, but in essence, it sort of gives you an idea of what are the benchmarks that people have been looking at to sort of deal with this, some of the parts discount, which I think is a big issue in most, in a good number of valuation where you're dealing with multi companies that have multiple different pieces and how do you really deal with that? So, right. And, and so, so that, so from a, so from a <laughs> perspective, that's sort of like where I, you know, so, so I, I got my, my business appraised. I was, I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, worked there for three years, decided to move back to, to New York from California. As you know, California, the real estate prices are pretty expensive. Had a young family, decided we wanted to come back to a place that was a little bit more affordable. I'm, I'm originally from Rochester, moved back here worked for a business appraisal, started working for a business appraisal firm out here, was a managing director through probably like last year, and then sort of stepped away from that. And then as a result of that, one of, one of the, the, the other reasons I stepped away was to sort of start, start my own fund. But while I was actually doing business appraisal, I actually was looking at companies and sort of applying sort of the, the private valuation methodology we were using in a, in a public, to, to basically some public securities and then built a track record based upon using that type of methodology. Now, what's happened recently has been a little bit different because it's the primary analysis techniques that I've looked at are the traditional sort of valuation techniques that are out there. But now with this, you know, with internet stuff and a lot of the changes of the e-commerce and, and what's really going on there, that's sort of been a shakeup, I think, in the whole, you know, um, you know, stock market slash valuation business. I mean, it's a it's a different way to think about things. Um, there's the companies I think have, you know, one way to sort of think about it that, that I've sort of, that it's made a little bit of sense to me in terms of some of these businesses is, you know, historically you had big businesses that were run by management. You could say, okay, that's the business run by the management. But then if you look at some of these businesses, like for example, Netflix, okay, I look at Netflix is not just Netflix. It's a VC fund run by Reed Hastings. Same thing with Facebook. Facebook is not just Facebook, it's it's a it's a VC fund run by Mark Zuckerberg. So you got these companies, these companies that are that are much that have much broader scopes of what they really are than traditionally what they've been. And trying to, and I think the way that the valuations, as we've seen play out, let's say, so, I mean, Facebook's probably a perfect example where you've seen a situation where when they originally came public, the market was was small, but as time goes on, it just gets bigger and bigger. And so those are the kinds of things that make it a little bit more challenging and different things that have happened since, let's say, the more traditional valuation approaches to things, which really fit more of companies that were around back in the you know, OOs up to that period of time. So it's, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a challenge. And I think what's happened is there's been a lot of excitement and money flowing towards these new ideas and these new types of companies. And traditionally, the types of companies that I've looked at and a number of other value investors have looked at have sort of been the money's sort of been drained away and gone to those companies. And similar to what happened in the dot-com boom, where in the late nineties, you had a lot of excitement about these internet companies and all the money sucked there. It's just that now I think the companies have a little bit more of a, of a um, established business model. 
And the real question for, for companies that aren't internet only is how is how are they incorporating the internet into their business strategy? And is it going to be a positive or negative? If they can adopt it, then it can become a real positive for the business. If it if they if all of a sudden they don't and they get eaten away, I mean, a classic example of that is probably newspapers where they basically were not able to quickly enough transition to an internet model. So basically they became a victim of it. There's other cases where, you know, now, now there's more competition. People are trying to more effectively compete against the, the these internet incumbents. So it's a, it's an interest, it's an interesting way, an interesting thing to think about and just a, a different dynamic in the market today than what historically there's been. And, you know, I think what happens with this growth value kind of cycle, it sort of goes back and forth over time. Right now, there's a lot of a lot of stuff towards growth, but I think what value investors really need to do is to examine each one of the companies they have to see how equipped are they to compete against these companies, and then do they have a do they have a an appropriate response, and what's really going to happen from that perspective. So it's a it's it's an it's an it's an interesting time. Um, and it's been a challenge, I'm saying, for a lot of the, the traditional value investors because things have sort of changed. And, you, and that's one thing that I've been challenged with is to say, okay, I've been using these metrics since 2000 before that. And w- what's changed? What, what types of things have really, ha- you know, how can I look at these businesses? Some of these businesses, like, like I'll, I'll example, I'll give you one that we actually hold, a company called Ashteed is very interesting in the fact that it's an it, it's a, it's a equipment leasing company that has a lot of network effects within each one of the markets that it serves. So it has local clustering, where in essence, it basically has leasing in each of these major markets around the country, and or it's building out those things. And it basically is building out these leasing, these leasing places where it can lease out its construction, scissors, lift, other types of equipment. And what it's actually been able to do over time is it can lease other equipment using the same infrastructure. So basically you can get an economies of scale I've talked with some bankers also, and there's really only two big players in this market. It's United Rentals and Ashteed. And Ashteed's known in the United States. It's it's um, you know, it's a it's it's a the local brand here is 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 a different name, but it's you know, it's, so basically it's um it's it's so so in essence, what happens in these local markets is that this banker said there's only two people that they really can the, this is a large bank, they, there's only two people that they would basically lend to is Ashteed. And United Rentals, and when you get to that position where you only have two players in a market, and these are local markets, they're dominating the local markets. Then that creates a real, I think, a real interesting networking effect, especially with some of the other themes that are sort of that are happening right now with the rebuild of the infrastructure and that kind of stuff. I think there's a lot of what I found in a lot of the holdings that's really gotten me more excited is to understand, is to sort of take a look at the themes and how are larger sort of trends in the market sort of driving some of these names like Ashteed being an example. So, um, so, so yeah, so, I mean, I think that the, the Ashteed in the United States is known as Sunbelt Rentals. I think a lot of people have seen them. They have the big green, the big green, um, you know, rental equipment that they rent around the country. But, but I think those are some of the things that have happened over time. Whereas, you know, the, 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 these ideas and models that some of the people have enunciated for this, from the networking effect, economies of scale and software. I think those are really present in the bricks and mortar world. You just need to, you need to think about, okay, where, where is that really happening versus not? And the, the thing is you get, you get the, these scaling models can really provide some interesting ideas. And I think, as you had mentioned in one of the questions there, the, uh, the, um, Hamilton. You you're, you're answering all my questions before I get to a- ask them. Okay, I, I, no, no, I, it's fine. I, look, I, I was going to say like, you know, you already answered. So t- tell me, what's your favorite TV show? I, I'm, I'm, out of, I'm, out of, I'm out of stuff to ask you. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting, it's an interesting it time. And, and the, the thing that I really enjoy doing is trying to find frameworks. There's a lot of real interesting. And, and, and what I really feel fortunate is there's a lot of investors who are willing to talk a lot about, about this kind of stuff, too, which I think where, before the Internet age, you know, what people used to do is they used to, and I was heavily involved in this in this message bulletin board called Corner Berkshire and Fairfax. He used to communicate that way. Who wrote um, that? That was was that was that Jake Taylor? Yeah. Okay. That was, who who wrote that website? Corner Berkshire. The Corner Berkshire and Fairfax. That was run by Sanjeev. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. So so he so it was a it's basically a it was like a bulletin board, but that was almost like the 
That's like the last generation. And before that, there wasn't anything. So this was, that was just a huge improvement going from nothing. Maybe you get together with some investors and talk about stuff. And then, then you get to like Corner Berkshire and Fairfax, which was sort of like a message board. That a lot of people still talk on it. You get some, and you, you get some pretty insightful analysis of these guys that are primarily, you call them amateurs, but they really know as much as other stock analysts because they've either spent time in the industry, they're familiar with the industry. It's really great. It's a really nice network effect. And typically, the, the, you actually get to meet some of these guys once a year when they had the Fairfax annual meeting up in Canada. And then now you've got, now that's even been pushed further because you've got a lot more resources like what you're doing here and a lot of other resources that really sort of accelerate this network effect of really ideas and basically creating interesting frameworks of what's really going on. I mean, pushing to some things that are some really interesting questions, whereas before you'd sort of think about it, well, who's really doing it? Like, for example, one of the things that I, I'm sort of going back and forth now is, okay, well, you look at these things like net promoter score. Okay, net promoter score is a very interesting thing that everybody seems to be really saying they're super duper happy about. But the problem with network, what I see, one of the problems with network promoter score is that it's not standardized and it can be, it can actually be, um, it can actually be manipulated because in essence, you ask customers, but you don't get to see only only your best customers are gonna are gonna respond to your net promoter score survey. The people that don't want anything to do with you aren't gonna you're getting a very skewed sample now. It can tell the, the people that are really excited about your company and that want to, you know, promote your thing. And it's great for those, but without this, the the framework of okay, if only ten percent of the customers are that way, then is it is it does it really make? If it's a large percentage, then it makes sense. But there's other other things like that. Is okay? Are there other ways to measure it? And one thing I've seen out there right now, a VC out in California, her name's Sarah, I forgot what her last name is, but she talks about this happiness metric and basically recurring revenue and stuff like that. So basically just, those, that's an example of a specific thing that, you know, people think about it, but, you know, years ago, you know, people would think about it by themselves and talk about it amongst a few people. Now you've got this huge internet where somebody's already thought about it has some really good ideas about it and you can think about it and then come up with, okay, does this make sense or not? It's really a, it's a different world as far as I see in terms of thinking about these ideas and, and being able to get world, people that have thought about these things for a long time, worldwide experts to sort of interact with each other and coming up with better solutions. It's, it, I find it just right. incredible just in terms of compared to where it, where it was 20 years ago. I mean, it's, it's totally different, but I, I, I want everybody listening to when they're when they're listening and watching this, when you hear Keith and how he's talking and everything that he's saying right now, he is the embodiment of the mind of an investor. OK, like, how, you know, when when you're when you're an investor, and you're looking at markets, you go down every possible rabbit hole you can. And all you want to do is try and take in as much of that information as you can to help you make an actionable decision. Keith is an is an endless well of that. So if there's only two or three questions I asked today, it's because Keith has so much information that he can convey in a short amount of time that it's, it's pretty incredible. So well, hopefully it's not too many rabbit holes. And, I love and, it. And for, unfortunately for the internet, it allows more rabbit holes to be opened up. <laughs> Whereas, you know, 10, 15, five, even five, 10 years ago, these rabbit holes wouldn't well, even been able to, the thought process, you need to right. collect even to talk about the issue just wasn't there, which is right. And and the great thing about it is you have communities of people that really enjoy doing it and are yeah. open to sharing. I mean that that I find is really awesome. You don't have a lot of people that are sort of there's some people that still try and hold information, but for the most part, it's just open and free. Right. And people can just sort of discuss ideas what they really want, which is I think the optimal way for all this stuff to play out. Well, Keith, I want to I want to hit on something because yeah. the one one thing that really stood out to me. Um, dur during your opening statements there was talking about this private valuation methodology that you've used for basically your entire career um, and, and now applying it to public companies. So I want to learn a little bit more about your methodology and your philosophy. You know, what, what does that mean that you take what you've been doing where you're looking at how you value these private companies and now applying it to public companies that has so much more information available to you to, to then ascribe sure, some sure. sort of So I mean, I mean, and the valuation of private companies has totally changed too. So when I started in the business in the late 90s, early 00s, 
to value a private business, you had to go out and visit the business because all the data was there. You basically, if you, you all their, all their, their systems for tracking inventory or whatever, whatever the key metrics were in the business, everything, you had to go to the business. Now, what's totally changed now in the fact that all that information is available to the business, most businesses, at the, they cut the touch of a keystroke. And the amount of public information, because in essence, the way a private business is valued, just like a public business, there's three approaches. You've got it. You can do an income approach, a discounted cash flow, take a look at publicly traded comparables. Well, in, in the private space, a lot of times there's not that many comparables, but you try and do the best you can, which is sort of like what a comparable analysis is anyway. You, you're not, you're trying to get as close as you can. You know you're not going to get a match. And then the, then the third is more of an asset approach. And the asset approach is if the business is not generating enough income from the assets, then the real question you need to ask is, okay, you can come up with an asset value, but is that asset value ever going to be unlocked? If it's never unlocked, then in essence, it's worth less than book value. And, and there's a lot of companies that are like that, where in essence, they, they, they deserve to be less than book value because there's no way for anybody to get, the only way for somebody to unlock it is for the businesses to be sold. And if you look at private companies, a lot of times people are running the businesses not from to maximize the not to maximize the cash flow. They're running the businesses because this is the way the family wants to run the business. And that's sort of the way it is. And that's something that we see in Asia a lot more too, is that the companies are not run for optimally for the minority shareholders because in essence they're the people in charge are running for the business for them. And so that's another difference I think that's helped at least in looking at companies in Asia and seeing them in the United States is when you realize that not everyone's motivation is to maximize the minority shareholders value, especially because the business, especially from a private perspective, if you're ma- if the business is making enough money, everybody in the family's happy, they're employed, they're doing whatever, then they don't need to, they don't need to maximize it. It's not, you know, they, they, if they wanted to, they, they could, but, but they would much rather, you know, that, that's not what their focus is. So as we use the same three approaches, it's income, you know, comparables, market approach, and then, and, and then, and then an asset-based approach. And so using those methodologies, now what we try and do in Bonhoeffer is there's some things I, I, while going through some of these things that I noticed different types of structures of companies, I think that we like to try to take advantage of where we can find some real interesting value. One is sort of these we define as compound mispricings. That's a situation where we've got a stock that's cheap and then a security in the stock's capital structure that's cheap. So probably a simple example of that would be, you know, you can take a look at, you know, we've, we've got the non-voting shares in a company. Now, in theory, a non-voting share should trade at less than a voting share in a company because on, on matters of great importance, the, you get a vote versus not. Now, in Western countries, those 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 differences are very small because the 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 trust of the company is very large, and therefore it's around five to ten percent is what the observed amount is. But in some other countries, the the the, the premium can be very large. Like in Korea, where we have some holdings, it can be 50, 60 percent. Now, what's happening in Korea, which makes that interesting, is governance is getting better. As governance gets better, that 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 um, their discount should decrease. Same thing with some of the parts. You get lots of some of the parts discounts, but again, it's all dependent upon someone actually, you know, doing something and, and, and actively trying to reduce that discount. And so those are some things that, you know, in the private world, we, we do a lot of stuff of, and there's a lot, um, there's a lot of stakes on both sides. So, so you get the best arguments you can get out there because you're dealing with tax money, which is people's real money. So you get a bunch of real smart valuation appraisers on both sides of these issues, they go to court and a judge makes a decision. So in essence, you've got really good arguments putting together based upon market data in a lot of the cases to sort of support these decisions. So there's a lot of, from a private, from the private market perspective, there's a, um, there's a, there's a lot of um, information there. So there we go. Um, There's a lot of, there we go. (laughs) There's 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 a lot of court cases that, that back up a lot of the information that's there that from the public investors may not be aware of, but there's a large amount of court cases. Like in the United States, in publicly traded companies, you very rarely see 
you know, um, very large. There, there's some large conglomerates, but most of them are just, they're, they're, not, they're nowhere near like what they are in Asia. But in private businesses, there's a lot of those there. So it's, a, I found a lot of the same tools really to be usable in both cases. Um, and, the, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's an interesting interesting sort of uh, analogy there. So no, I mean, I, hopefully I answered your question there. <laughs> it was in there somewhere for sure. Okay. But <laughs> but I wanted to actually um, touch on something that you talked about here, and then you also mentioned in your Q1 2020 letter, and you talk about the evolution of value investing, and you talked about mm -hmm. one valuation model that was that that kind of stood out to me, and I wanted to learn about it a little bit more, and that's the the seven powers valuation model. Can you, can you explain what this means and, and why, why you paid particular focus on this model in that letter? Um, yeah, no, that it, particularly that, that model was um, it based it's the reason I liked it is that, is it, is it really explained a lot of what was really going on with, uh, with, with companies like Netflix. It really, it, and what it really did is it says, okay, we're going to take a look at, the various factors. Hey Keith, of, do you want to you want to come back? I, I miss you. What's going on? Yeah, let me let, let me let me see if I can. <laughs> I know my uh, my camera's doing uh, not quite working here. Let's see. There we go. Um, up. Ah, uh, we may we may have to do this. Uh, I don't know if you want me to restart this or what, but it's 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 camera it's a camera malfunction technical difficulties here sorry about that oh it's all good all right so um yeah let's just keep okay. going i'll just i'm just gonna stare into the you know one person thing and uh you'll be talking over me it's fine okay I'll well I'll, I'll try i'll try i'll try and uh try and uh you know uh yeah we'll, we'll just go forward with that but uh, that i think is one of the better books i've read over the past year in regards to understanding what, what book was that it was the Seven Powers book by right, right, right. It's by um, Himmler, I think is the guy's name. Okay, uh, but it's a uh, but yeah, it's it's the Seven Powers book by Hamilton Hammer, excuse me, is his name, and it's one of the better books because it's one of the ones where I, where he really sets out and explains some of these new these new companies like Netflix. What's why have they been able to scale? Because the key things they've been able to do over time is they've been able to quickly scale and use that scale to create competitive advantage and then be able to, to the example he gives is sort of what happened with Netflix against Blockbuster. Why did Netflix all of a sudden basically be able to really dominate Blockbuster by basically coming up with a, you know, coming, coming up with the ability to scale really quickly and then, and then, and then then distribute their cost across a number of users and basically be able to provide a better service. I mean, a lot of the stuff that he has sort of is in confluence with a lot of these other business models, which is basically try to find where is the consumer pain and come up with a better service and then, and then try to try to use some of these competitive strategy um, sort of frameworks, for example, in terms of scaling to basically prevent using economies of scale to really um, to, to to really prevent competitors from coming in and effectively competing with you, and so that 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 that's one of the one of the examples he provides. He provides a few other examples, but that's probably like one of the better the the, the better models that I've seen. One of the better books that I've seen out there in regards to what you know, and that and then in addition, he's got other examples of network effects. Um, and he's got examples of sort of technological obsolescence. It's sort of a, an update. I don't know if people are familiar with, there's actually a book called The Gorilla Game, which in, in essence is sort of a, the, what I call V.1 of the, of the network effects. It was written in 1999 in the last dot-com boom and talked about like, why did some companies like Microsoft basically just dominate these businesses because they were able to get their standards accepted or adopted and therefore they just became the, the the network effects really just um just just created a lot of uh, a value from that perspective um but yeah no his book his book is probably one of the, one of the better books that's out there i mean basically the things he focused on were barriers to entry scale and adoption as differentiators so barriers to barriers to to scale basically means that once you get big other people aren't going to do you but then the other question really had to do with sort of this barriers barriers to adoption so the scale things include scale economics, switching cost, and network economics, and the adoptions included sort of counter positioning, which basically the counter positioning is a real interesting one that he brought up, where basically you 
all, all companies, when they're out there, they develop, they, they live in these ecosystems that they develop as, as they're developing a product or service. Counter positioning is where you can actually go out and you built a business model where your competitors to actually compete against you have to, to totally destroy their existing ecosystem. Therefore, it prevents them from actually competing with you. So that there's examples of that, that that you can see like in various technology companies where basically there's a, when, when you're building a supply chain, let's say for a disk drive of a certain size, you built up all the suppliers around you. So a new guy comes in and builds up a new supply chain for a smaller, a smaller device. And for you to compete with him, you have to destroy your supply chain that's making a lot of money for you right now. And so there's not very much of an incentive to do that. So it's 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 those types of ideas of of thinking beyond, okay, well, you know, what what type of competitive dynamics are there and what business leaders can basically navigate those complex competitive dynamics. And I think that's what you're really seeing in guys with like Reed Hastings, guys like, you know, these guys that are really smart guys that have been able to navigate multiple changes in their ecosystem or competitive environment. And what you're really buying with the, with those companies is you're not just buying the existing company, you're buying these guys' ability to change and to adapt, which is very important in, in today's market as it becomes more and more competitive. Um, but, but I would that book, that Seven Powers book, The Foundation of Business Strategy to anybody that's interested in trying to understand these types of businesses. Before that, I really didn't have much of an understanding, but he provides a pretty good sort of framework of how all that sort of plays out from that perspective. Well, to put it in context of your letter, it seems that, you know, you were kind of, as, as from an investor perspective, you were using that seven powers model as a basis to really test some of the companies that you were looking at to see if they would be successful in markets like we're experiencing today. And then it you were able, oh, this basically is telling me what I've been doing. And here, here it actually takes, it, it, it provides a little more context as to why these are the types of companies that I'm looking at right now. So do you, do you want to maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe I mean, I go th- off I th- that I a little think, bit more? Yeah. What, what I was really, I think another use of this is clearly the guys that are using these models to compete, you can clearly see that, but then you can also test your existing companies, the incumbent businesses to see whether they can actually adopt this innovation or not, or, 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 or where, where they would, or, or can they, and what types of actions are they taking to deal with to deal with these threats, and so I think that's where because one thing I've noticed even um, in one area back in the early mid OOS that we were able that I was able to take advantage of with some of my in my own personal account was was basically the market overreacting to technology advancements, and so what that will happen is the market will rush to all the technology disruptors and then then basically drop all the guys that are the, the incumbents. But you really need to make a make a, a decision there because you know you the, the incumbents can still the, the the incumbents can still adopt the innovation or if they can just slow it for a certain period of time then all of a sudden their their cash flows look different than 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 if they can so it's really a question of being able to use these technology models in evaluating the businesses that that we have in the portfolio and I think it's an interesting way that a lot of people should look at these types of things and and trying sort of strategy to the overall, to, you know, to the overall portfolios they have and the investments that they have. So, I mean, I think it's, that, that and that's what we've done with our, with, with all of our holdings. Now, there's some of them that I've looked at, you know, an interesting area to think about this also is, let's say, a, a um, an industry like banking, okay, is banking, some, some aspects of banking are, are going to be affected by this once others aren't. And if the market just takes a broad stroke and say, anybody who's not in, really has the highest end fintech stuff all the banks are discounted by that it really again it depends on going into the details and looking at stuff i mean there's banks out there now that i think are, are decent banks and grow like growth companies and when you look at okay is are any of these things going to affect them no because in essence what their focus is, is their focus isn't necessarily on pulling in consumer deposits their focus is on making good loans in certain regions of the country and being very efficient and so I think there's 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 different applications of this, I think, to, to a number of different industries. And I think everyone just needs to be really, really sort of address this, no matter what business you're looking at, um, in terms of being able to see is your are your how's disruption gonna affect whatever business you're in and the companies that you hold. 
and especially true from value investors, because I think there's some some of these companies are going to be really disrupted and disrupted in a big way. And those are reflected in the valuations. And those are the ones you want to try and stay away from. The ones that where you think that the company can either effectively, you know, spread out the time frame when this disruption is going to happen or basically as, as an effective competition against the disruption. I think those, at least that's where I find things are. I think things are pretty interesting from that perspective. I mean, there's also, there's also another interesting area that, you know, historically value investing has started out, you know, if you go back to Ben Graham, you have sort of just the multiple investings that, that, that type of investing, I think sort of evolved out now to be more of, okay, we're maybe incorporating some of this disruption aspect. But another thing I think that's important in business is now you also have people that have looked at consumer brands and products that have been pretty strong. But another particular concept I found sort of interesting at this point is describe it as sort of velocity. How fast are you turning your products and services, especially for consumer products and services? And, and how fast, because in essence, if you can turn your products faster, or services faster, you can get a higher ROE with a lower margin that you're when you're providing the service to a customer. So, in a lot of the distribution businesses that we have, the auto dealers, for example, we we look at that as a key metric. I mean, there's actually a company that we don't hold in China that actually is probably he's the only guy. I'm surprised when I've gone through all the various annual reports of these car dealers, he's the only guy that really mentions mentions this. It's a company called China Nidong. In China, and he runs a bunch of car dealerships in mainland China, and those car dealerships have almost twice the inventory turns of any Western. I mean, their inventory turns are like twelve times. Like, to, and to give you an idea, the best ones in the U.S., you know, maybe CarMax, their inventory turns are maybe seven, six or six, six to seven. Um, you get the one one. There's, and so, in essence, that gives you an idea that these guys are are turning their cars twice as fast. And, and when you turn them twice as fast, you can take a little bit of the lower margin and give it to the customer. So you're providing the customer a good dealer, but you're just turning it really quick. So I think that's a very important important aspect of the business that is really just, this guy really describes it in detail in his annual reports. Um, and it's so, so, I mean, that and, and we've tried, I mean, if you reflect that back on, okay, let's take a look at, at car dealers in the US. The same thing happens. You can take a look at the dealers that have the high, I like the dealers that have the highest turns. And so that's one of the key metrics you can look at. They have local economies of scale. You look for the ones that have the higher margins. But then just from a bigger picture perspective, you can look at other guys that may be online only guys. And to a certain extent, they do have some advantages, but they also have some disadvantages that they don't, they can't monetize their cash flows in as many ways as the, um, as the, as the offline players. But they do have the advantage that, in essence, they're building up their whole business model based upon sort of a customer service sort of approach to things. And so it's it's and you know you can get some of these 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 companies selling for really reasonable multiples that have high velocity that are in my mind really sort of sustainable businesses. That's what gets me excited is you can get you can get companies like we own a company in the UK called Cambria Automotive. It's selling at five times earnings has the fastest inventory turns in the UK and has the highest margins in the UK. Part of it shoot the margins due to clustering. And, and, and there's, another there's another company in the UK that we don't own um, that's called MotorPoint that in essence is like, the, it's similar to the CarMax, but they sell slightly used cars. They have the highest turns, they're higher than anyone else in the UK. I mean, Cambria is number two, but again, they, they, they basically have, you know, they're selling for 10 times next year's earnings. So you get these companies that are selling for these low multiples and it's just like, it's, 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 what I'm really observing now is there seems to be more of a bifurcation. For a while there, I didn't think it was that great, but now with these SPACs and these other sorts of things that are going, I think the bifurcation is getting bigger like it was in 2000 where you get these really high growth internet names that have really high prices. And then you get these bricks and mortar businesses that people may not, may not, appreciate that they've actually adopted a lot of the internet internet approach to things and therefore that but they're being priced as though they're not going to be part of this growth but i think they really are and i think that's where there's some opportunities especially in some of the car dealers and distributors in the u.s and around the world i mean the thing about car dealerships that's interesting too is you can follow i think i've seen this happen before you sort of say okay well how's COVID affected all these things 
Well, you look at the dealership in China that I had mentioned before, that dealer's probably up 170, 180% this year. You look at the dealers in the US, they're, pr- they're probably flat from the beginning of the year. The UK is down 30%. You go to South Africa, it's down 50%. Well, you can see a lot of that is, okay, well, this is these are the places that have been recovering from COVID over time. And or, you know, people eventually, the rest of the world will catch up and everyone will be caught up in terms of COVID. So I think you can see a in terms of you know dealing with it and, and having the businesses come back. So I think you can see that solar sort of roll across the country, around the world, in terms of what's going on. But right now you see price differentials reacting to what's going on in the market. But you can see, you know, here's a here's a market in China where, where it's been effectively dealt with and they're back to normal and actually going higher. And so I mean, I think there's some of those kinds of things I think that are interesting themes or ways to think about sort of investments too on an international basis where, I mean, I think even five or 10 years ago, we wouldn't have the information or really the ability to see what was really going on there, right? I mean, now with this interconnected world, you can see, okay, well, here's China, a country that's sort of, you know, been through this, they're through it, but then and then you can see countries at different levels of of getting through this, and then what and and what the what the effects have been over time. So it's a it's a, a, an interesting, I think, observation from that perspective in regards to these businesses and how they recover and stuff like that. And there's other interesting data points that are out there too, that that that, that in terms of taking a look at like stock versus bond yields and stuff like that. But you know, I just really think that it's a you know it's there's a really a lot it's a data rich environment which which i think helps out quite a bit in terms of being able to take a look at these things and observe what's really going on so right all right so keith yep. uh, we've gotten to the point in the interview because literally you actually answered all my questions so this is great okay. <laughs> you you're, you really killed it so i i have to ask you you know what what, what what investing experience would you say impacted you the most in your career? You know, and the most lessons learned that to this day, you're like, I always look back on that. I mean, I think part of it, and maybe it's not one particular time, but it's basically just sort of a mindset of always just asking questions. And I think what's happened over time is there's more, more available. Those questions can get more easily and easily answered, but Anybody who really thinks about a lot of things realizes when you get one question answered, there's three more that pop up, right? And so it turns, you get down all these rabbit holes. So in the ability to, in my mind, I think the key thing is the ability to, to do questions and not be concerned that you're, that you're going to be wrong because you're going to be wrong. I'm wrong a lot of times. I mean, the, th- the great thing about investing is you can be wrong most of the time and still do well, right? I mean, and so... And, and what's fortunate now is that there's a lot of people to tell you you're wrong and they're willing to do it. I mean, that's one of the things I really appreciate what people tell me, they'll honestly tell me, I think you're wrong here, which that's the only way you're ever going to get better is basically for someone to tell you you're wrong and to think about it and say, okay, yeah, you're right. I'm, this, I'm not right here. And, and, and this thing, and that's, and that's sort of the things when I, when I think about companies like sort of Carvana, I sort of, when I first, my first initial for that kind of company is, oh, it's way over that. But then when you sort of think about it, you say, okay, Carvana appeals to a certain group of customers. How many customers do they really need to appeal to, to make the business model work? And you sort of say, well, they don't have to really appeal to everybody. They can just get a little niche of it and it can still work. And that seems like that's a reasonable thing. So in essence, I think there's a lot, when you think about things, at least from my perspective, I think when you think about things, you can sort of go back and say, okay, what? It's trying to understand, especially when you get companies that are valued really high, what set of assumptions have to play out for that to really work and and how realistic are those assumptions? I mean, Carvana is just in a market that's just huge, is hugely, um, you know, it's all fragmented and stuff like that. So not only them, but the other players have been been taking advantage of that for years. I mean, the whole consolidation of that business of guys like CarMax and the, the dealers in the U.S. around the world has really created a lot of created a lot of value for shareholders. And this is just a, a, a different aspect of it. But but, I, but I, I think in terms of a specific experience, a lot of it is just, you know, I, I don't know, just one thing leading to another. I think the thing that I really think is probably the best is just the internet and the ability for the information to be available and the communications between people to basically talk and communicate. Because I, I and, and to a certain extent, COVID's really, I think COVID's helped that a lot too, because Whereas you couldn't meet people to face to face, 
there's a lot more of this, you know, conversations going on just in between individuals and people really feel that that's, and I think that's become more part of people's lives. It's just, I think it's an interesting, an interesting thing. And it's much more, it's become much more customizable. Whereas before you go to a conference where there were hundreds of people, now it's more more customizable into your individual area that you that you may be interested in talking to some people about this, talking to some people about that. It's just, I, I just find it just really an interesting time to be around and to think about these ideas and to bounce them off people and being able to try to develop, okay, trying to understand how what's really going on in the world from, you know, based upon looking at these models and stuff. So maybe it's more of an off, offshoot of some of the engineering kind of stuff too, just trying to understand how do these things work. So, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I know that was a long-winded answer and maybe didn't give you a specific time frame, but I think it's really been more of a confluence of different forces or time that's made, that's really made the impact um, for me in terms of, um, you know, in terms of investment research and just the stuff doing, doing what I really enjoy, which is basically talking and thinking about these things and that kind of stuff. That is for sure. Well, we're, we're actually there. So Keith, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know about you, Bonhoeffer Funds, and, and also to follow you on social media? Yeah, so we've got a bonhoeffercapital.com is our, is our website. You can find out about the information there. You can contact um, myself or Jessica Greer. Um, and my email is ksmith at bonhoeffercapital.com. I'm on Twitter, bonhoeffercads. Um, and so just any, any of those, any of those, um, avenues will, uh, you know, you can contact me if you've got any questions, I'm always willing to talk and listen to people's ideas and to work through stuff. Cause that's, uh, that's how, that's how I think too. I just, am one of these kind of guys that I've got to think through it and talk through it to see if it makes sense. So <laughs> there may be a little bit than other folks, but that's, that's sort of how I, you know, how I find my most fruitful ideas come from. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Keith, I really, really appreciate you, uh, you, you, you offering me the opportunity, Robert. It's really been, it's really been fun. No, absolutely. Keith, thank you so much for joining today. Do you, I, I hope everybody was taking notes. Okay. There's a lot of information that Keith just said. So I, I do appreciate you taking the time and um, I look forward to our next chat. All right. Same here. All right. See you later. See Bye. you later. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.